As Pastor David mentioned, we're going to start a new series, Letters to the Church, and we're going to work our way through the Pauline epistles. I'm curious, did anybody watch last week's football game between the 49ers and the Los Angeles Rams? Maybe not, but some of you did. There were some exciting moments. Uh, Actually, for the first time since 2005, that's a long time, Christian McCaffrey scored a touchdown in three different mediums. He threw a touchdown pass, he rushed for a touchdown, and he caught a touchdown pass. That's cool. And that doesn't happen very often. It's worth getting excited about. Kind of, right? Maybe you're not into football. Okay, I want to tell you something more exciting than any football play that you could have imagined. I was really hoping there'd be something I'd be able to tell you from yesterday, but unfortunately not. <laughs> Faith. Faith is worth getting excited about. Faith is something we can hold on to. It's worthy of our excitement. Our memory verse, scripture memory verse for the month is going to be 1 Thessalonians 1-2. And I want to say this together, if you will join me in reciting 1 Thessalonians 1-2. 1 Thessalonians 1-2. We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. 1 Thessalonians 1-2. We're going to dig into the book of 1 Thessalonians over the next month, and we're going to really make sense of why, why does Paul want to continually mention people in his prayers, especially these Thessalonians, and we're going to really sort of dig into it. Before we get into 1 Thessalonians, though, I want to take you myself to the book of Acts. You can turn there. You don't have to. What I want you to do, though, is to listen. And I want you to listen as I read to you from Acts 17, And the reason I want you to listen is I want you to try to picture this event that's taking place. So I'm going to read to you from Acts 17, and as I do, try to picture it. Through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, blaming and proving that the Messiah had come and risen from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. But other Jews were jealous. So they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. And Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decree, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they made Jason and the others post bond and let them go. Paul and Silas enter this city, Thessalonica. And as they enter this city, Paul does what he usually does. He goes into the synagogue and begins telling the people in the synagogue about Jesus. And this creates a problem because when you hear about Jesus and you understand who Jesus is, it changes you. And many people begin to be changed in the city of Thessalonica. The result, after a little while, 
is a riot. A riot starts. Paul and his companions, Silas being one of them, flee the city. Get out of the city. Meanwhile, Jason, who apparently seems to have been one of the big leaders in Thessalonica amongst the Christians, Jason is arrested, thrown in jail, and has to pay a hefty bond to get out. So we've got a new church in the city of Thessalonica. A brand new church has started. But Paul and Silas are no longer in the city. They've had to flee, probably 150 miles or so away to the city of Berea. So there's this outstanding question. What is this new church to do in the absence of its founder? What is this new church to do without the apostle Paul to teach them? They come up with a plan. A young pastor named Timothy. This pastor named Timothy is told to travel between Paul and Thessalonica, bringing news from Paul and news from Thessalonica and allowing some continued conversations to take place, allowing Paul to answer doctrinal questions that come up in this new church. And that's the letter of 1 Thessalonians. The church in Thessalonica was an example of faith in the midst of opposition. And as we read through 1 Thessalonians, we get to see Paul's response. I want to show you a picture on this next slide. So this picture is uh, a, a picture of a Greek papyrus. Okay, it is called uh, P65. It is the oldest known manuscript of 1 Thessalonians. Now, people who are much better at reading handwriting could tell you that that's 1 Thessalonians. I cannot. But I want you to understand the sort of anticipation as 1 Thessalonians, this letter written by the Apostle Paul, would have had for the church in Thessalonica. Remember, Paul had founded the church. He's been pulled away. He's been dragged away from the church. He's no longer there. But news Rumors spreading through the streets. Timothy's come with a letter from the Apostle Paul. Timothy's here, and he's got greetings from no one less than the Apostle Paul. We should gather together. Let's hear what the Apostle Paul says. So I want you to have that in your mind as we open our Bibles to 1 Thessalonians 1, and we listen to the much-anticipated words of the Apostle Paul as he sends his letter to the Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians 1. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering 
with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Paul's introduction. What I want you to see and what Paul has for the Thessalonian church and therefore by implication has for each of us here the message that is given to us in 1 Thessalonians, first of all, is that faith, love, and hope are worth our time in prayer and thanksgiving. Faith, hope, and love are worth our time. Verse 2 tells us that the Christian life should be marked by regular, extended, strenuous times of prayer and thanksgiving. That should mark the Christian life. Regular strenuous times of prayer. In verse 2, the Apostle Paul emphasizes that he is praying, thanking God continually for the Thessalonians. This is not just a mere in passing, I'll pray for you today. This is much, much more. This is regular prayer. Continual prayer does not mean that the Apostle Paul was constantly, every waking moment, praying for the Thessalonians. He had lots of other people he was responsible for too. Continual prayer means that it was a habit. It was a regular thing. It was habitual. We need to learn to be habitually in prayer, to make it our habit so that it is our default. I wanted to tell you just a little history of prayer in the early church. So we have the apostles. Uh, We have the New Testament, where we read some of the stories of the apostles and various other people, and prayer is a prominent part in the New Testament. We see that right there in verse 2, our memory verse. Prayer was significant. But after the apostles, did the church continue in prayer? The answer is yes. I want to tell you the story of a particular man named Polycarp. So we're going to do just a little history lesson here. Polycarp was essentially the protege of the apostle John. So the Apostle John worked with a young man named Polycarp and really trained Polycarp in the gospel. Ignatius, who was another church leader at that time, he writes about Polycarp, that Polycarp was known for trading sleep for prayer. Do you understand what that means? Trading sleep for prayer. Polycarp was known that when it came down to it, if he needed to pray, he would give up sleep in order to pray. That's cool. That'd be good to be known by that. But I found another story from Polycarp. Uh, Polycarp eventually was martyred for Christ. And in the story of his martyr, what we read is that on the day of his arrest, the soldiers come bearing swords to arrest Polycarp in his home. They show up, they knock on the door, Polycarp lets them in, And then Polycarp does something really interesting. He calls for those in his house to make a meal. Says, would you please prepare a meal for the soldiers? Kind of crazy, but okay. 
If it was me and the soldiers are willing to take a meal, I'm thinking, all right, here's my chance to get out of Dodge. The soldiers sit down to eat their meal. And it must have been a really good meal because it's a two-hour-long meal. Polycarp goes upstairs and starts praying for everybody that he's ever interacted with because he knows that his death is coming. Instead of getting out of Dodge, Polycarp commits to prayer because he understands that that's the real value. We need to be in prayer. I worry that my life too often gets in the way of prayer. I too often trade everything else for prayer. When it comes down to it, I probably trade prayer for sleep instead of trading sleep for prayer. I trade entertainment for prayer. I oftentimes trade away prayer for other things. We need to be people of prayer. In fact, verse 3 goes on and explains that when we offer prayer and thanksgiving, there's three items that are really worth our time in prayer and thanksgiving. Look at the three items that are mentioned. We have faith. Faith naturally produces works. If you believe in Christ, you believe he died for your sins, you believe he bought you, bought your redemption, you are naturally going to work for him. So faith, it's worth praying about. Love, it's worth praying for. When you truly love others, you will labor for them. Hope is the other item that's mentioned. Hope. We have a hope, more than just like a, I wish it would come true, but a earnest expectation of eternity with God. Hope results in endurance. But it's not just faith, love, hope. I'm sorry, but there's more. All you need is love is not quite right. We need more. We need faith in the Lord Jesus. Love in the Lord Jesus and hope in the Lord Jesus. When we have faith in the Lord Jesus, love in the Lord Jesus, and hope in the Lord Jesus, we have a recipe for success, a recipe for growth, something that's worthy of prayer and thanksgiving. So let me give you an action step. My action step for you is shore up your foundation pray and ask for prayer. I don't mean that you just walk up to someone and arbitrarily say, I'm going to pray for you. No, make it genuine. Make it a habit. Make it habitual where we shore up that foundation by praying and asking for prayer. So we're going to make this an action step that we implement right here and right now. I'm going to ask you to look around. I know you normally don't get to look around in church, or at least your parents say, stop looking around. Look around. Find someone in the building right now. Identify someone. I want you to pray for them right now. We're going to take a minute. Pray for their faith. Pray for their love. Pray for their hope. All right. Hopefully you all had the opportunity to do the first action step. I hope that's not the first action step you've done in the last six months, but Pray for each other. I encourage you to regularly make prayer a habit, continually in prayer. 
In verses 4 through 6, as we move forward, what I want you to see is that the gospel demands a response from each and every person. I love the way the Apostle Paul starts this. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you. The idea of for we know could also be we acknowledge, we admit that God has chosen you. God has chosen you to salvation. What is the evidence? Why do they know that God had chosen them for salvation? Because they heard the gospel and responded to it. So here's an interesting thing. We could debate predestination up and down and left and right. Here's what I know. If you have accepted Christ's death on the cross as payment for your sins, and you are solely relying on his death on the cross as payment for your sins, then you have been chosen by God. I know that. And that's what Paul is saying, is I know you Thessalonians have been chosen by God because you have accepted Jesus as your Savior. You heard the gospel. And you responded to it. Paul says they've been loved by God. God loves each and every believer. And it changes who we are. Because it brings us to that saving knowledge of him. In verse 5, I see an important aspect. The message of the gospel is more than just words. Now, I want to be clear here. Words are important. Romans 10, 9 tells us that we confess with our mouth. Words are important, an important part of the gospel. But the gospel is more than just mere words. It's more than just some magical incantation. The gospel is life-changing. We confess with our mouths, and God changes us. If we are to accept the gospel, it's more than just a magical incantation. It's an embracing. It changes who we are because we turn ourselves over completely to Christ. We see lives changed by the gospel. The gospel should change you. In verse 6, I see another important aspect, that the minister of the gospel should be a model for those who are called. So really what I see here is almost like three levels of spiritual growth. The first is a response to the gospel, an accepting of the gospel, a recognition that I'm a sinner. I can't save myself, but Jesus died on the cross and paid for my salvation and an accepting of that gift of salvation. That's level one. Level two is recognizing this is more than just words. This is an embracing of that. Taking on Jesus' style, his ways, his manners, his humility, living a Christ-like way. More than just words, but my actions reflect Christ. That's level two. And level three is to model that for others. So that others can look and say, I wonder how I should live in this situation. Oh, here's somebody who's a Christian, and they've modeled that for me. That's how I should live. I wonder if I should go in this building. I don't see the other Christians I know going in there. Maybe not. To model the gospel is that next level. So I've got an action step. I want to ask you, how do you need to respond to the gospel? 
Have you accepted Jesus as your personal Savior? Remember, that's the first step. If you've never accepted Jesus as your personal Savior, do that today. Come talk to me after the service. I'd love to talk with you about that. Remember, the next step is to really embrace it. Not just to accept it, but to say, I'm going to pattern my life after, after Jesus Christ. I'm going to live in a Christ-like way. That's level two. Embrace the gospel. Maybe you need to move to level three. To begin modeling the gospel for others. To begin living a life that you can call somebody, come follow me. I'm following Jesus. Follow me. I'll show you how to live. I'll show you how to follow Christ. All of us are somewhere on this scale. How do you need to grow to advance on this scale of the gospel? In verses 7 through 10, what I see is that the recipient of the gospel is forever changed. The recipient of the gospel is forever changed. The Apostle Paul really highlights in verses 7 through 10 the way in which the Thessalonians themselves begin to model the gospel for not just other people in Thessalonica, but people throughout the entire region of Macedonia, Achaia, and even into other parts of the world. Verses 7 through 8 really emphasize to me that the change brought about by the gospel is noticeable. Those who have embraced the gospel begin to live in a way that it is noticeable as they give up the things of the world and begin to think about things from the perspective of Christ. How can I use this aspect of my life to bring glory to Christ? Is this decision something that will bring honor to Christ or something that will take away from Christ? People will notice. In verse 9, I want you to see that the change brought about by the gospel involves a change in loyalty. The city of Thessalonica had a beautiful view of Mount Olympus. Have any of you ever been in like a mountain town or something that sits at the base of a beautiful mountain and you can sort of see it off in the distance and imagine the beauty or you know, a desire to go hike it? The city of Thessalonica had a beautiful view of Mount Olympus. The quote-unquote, seat of the gods. Idolatry was rampant in Thessalonica. The people of Thessalonica had to change their loyalty. The Apostle Paul talks about them turning to God from their idols, to reject their previous idolatry, and to embrace God. Finally, in verse 10, what I see is that the change brought about by the gospel results in earnest expectation. In fact, the whole book of 1 Thessalonians and really 2 Thessalonians could be summarized in one word, hope. That's what the book is about. Remember who these Thessalonians are. They're in a city that has thrown the Apostle Paul out. They have turned from their idolatry to worship of God. And the Apostle Paul says, great Keep going because we have a hope, an earnest expectation that one day Jesus is coming again. One day Jesus is coming back to earth. One day Jesus is going to set up his kingdom and rule. The change brought about by the gospel results in 
earnest expectation. Our faith is not just in some God sitting atop Mount Olympus. Our faith is in the living God who's coming again to redeem and perfect the world in which we live. So I want you to evaluate yourself and ask yourself, how has the gospel changed you? Do you need to grow in your embracing of Christ-likeness? Do you need to grow in your prayer life? That's almost a rhetorical question. The answer is yes. Do you need to grow in modeling the gospel, discipling others, bringing others under your wing and showing them what it's like to live for Christ? Maybe you need to grow in your hope. How is your hope? Are you consistently looking forward to that moment when Christ returns, to that hope we have of eternity with God? Or do you go about life mopey, thinking nothing good's ever going to happen? No. If you've accepted Jesus as your Savior, I guarantee you there is a glorious future ahead. The Apostle Paul sent the letter of Thessalonians to a church. A church that had converted to Christ, but had been left wondering what's next. And Paul's answer is simple. I'm thankful for your faith. Keep that earnest expectation, waiting for God's Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who will rescue us from the coming wrath. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the hope, the hope that we have in Jesus. The hope we have that Jesus is coming again. I pray, Lord, that we would embrace the gospel. That we would be excited about faith. That we would turn to you and live to be more Christ-like. That we would model Christ-likeness for others. And that we would earnestly hope, waiting for that day when you come again to redeem this world. Father, I pray for any who have not taken that first step of accepting Jesus as their Savior. I pray that you would lead them, pull on their hearts to understand that you are earnestly waiting, waiting for them to come and accept you, the Savior of the universe, as their personal Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.